Welcome to White Plains Baptist Church. My name is Gary, and I joyfully serve as senior pastor here. And if you're new to us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest this morning. You are an answer to prayer. I've been praying for you and your family this week, trusting that God is working, showing you more of Him, and hopefully growing a desire within you to be with His people in the church. So thank you for being our guest. I hope that you see and find our church to be a warm and welcoming group of people. Kids, it's always good seeing you all here at church, and before we dismiss you to Kids Church, Lacey and I wanted to invite y'all to come up here and share with the adults and the teenagers a little bit about what you all are learning. So I don't think this is a surprise to most of you, so come on up here if you're, if you're in the kids' ministry and are, are comfortable coming up here. Lacey um, Connor is our kids' ministry director, and she has a team of adult volunteers that are pouring into our kids, discipling them, sharing Jesus with them, and encouraging them in their faith. And uh, kids, thank you for being up here and sharing a little bit about what you're learning in Kids Church. Like you said, I'm Lacey Carter. I'm the Kids Ministry Director. And each month, around each month, we have a new unit in our gospel project curriculum. And this month's unit was focusing on Peter's ministry. And each unit has a big picture question and a key verse that goes along with it. So we're going to share those with you this morning. And our big picture question for this unit is, why does God command Christians to tell others about Jesus? Do you want to share the answer? We tell others about Jesus so they will hear and believe the good news. And our key passage this unit was Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Thank you, guys. Our kids' ministry is such an important ministry. It's, it's important. Uh, there's more decisions made for Jesus at the elementary age than at any other age currently. Uh, it used to be teenagers. Uh, it used to be adults, but then it keeps getting younger. Pretty soon, our newborns are going to be the ones that we're evangelizing the most. But, but right now, kids, are, it's such an important thing. They're learning so many things uh, in school, around the world, in, in their homes, and, and they need to be told and reminded of the gospel. And so, so kids, thank you all so much for sharing with us what you're learning. We'll go ahead and dismiss you up to Kids Church. And so Kids Church is for kids in kindergarten through fifth grade. And parents and grandparents, you can pick them up after our service is over this morning in the lobby. We're going to be in Genesis 10 and 11 this morning. Uh, as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to remind you of Vision Sunday coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, March the 10th. I am uh, excited uh, to share with you where uh, I sense God is leading us as a church. I've spent the past couple of years getting to know you, getting to know our community, our church, our history, and I have been prayerfully considering how God would use a church like ours in this county, in this region. And March 10th will be the Sunday that I began to lay out a vision of who we are as a church and what we are to be about. 
and it's going to be uh, no big secret. It's actually, if you, it's in your bulletin, the, the, the mission uh, statement or the vision of ministry statement. On your way out, if you go out this way, you'll see it on the red sign as you leave. And so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a secret, and it's not anything new or like fancy or smart. It's uh, straight out the Bible. It is uh, an important thing um, as we consider who we are as a church, our identity as a church. And a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks is the what, not the how. The how will come later. We'll figure the how out together, but I want to, I want to direct our thoughts to the what. And this is that, that vision uh, of ministry statement there in your bulletin is important uh, to help us get there. Uh, Allen County, over the past year, I've noticed Allen County needs a church that stands out from the culture. We need a church that stands out from the culture, not just to stand out, but to stand out for the sake of the gospel. The gospel message is what the church is about, and Allen County needs a church that is standing out from the culture for the sake of the gospel. Allen County also needs a church that takes the Bible and its message seriously. Churches aren't only a club of Christians that get together. We are we are a group of people that are bound to a book and buy a book, and we need to take the Bible seriously as a church. It's not just a book, it's the book for the church, and, and Allen County needs a church that takes the Bible seriously, and not only takes it seriously, but applies it intentionally, lives it out. And I'm looking forward to talking more about that with you. Allen County needs a church that is known for its love. This is such an important thing the church needs to be known for. If a church isn't known for its love, you have to wonder what the church is about. Love should come from us because of our love for God's Word. And Allen County needs a church that's known for its love, not only for itself, we should love each other, absolutely. That is a big part of what a church is to do. But we should love the community as well. And how we do that is, is many different ways, for sure. But but we need to be known for our love for each other and for the community and for God. And Allen County needs a church that is known for its commitment to make disciples. This is the biggest problem in not just Allen County, but in the church world proper, is the church has forgotten or have stopped making disciples. Culture is making disciples, and you see that all over the place. The church has forgotten how to make disciples. We've forgotten that that's what we're here to do, not only to be made a disciple for Jesus, but to make disciples as well. Allen County needs a church that lives out the fruits of the Spirit. And if you ever wonder, are you saved? If you ever wonder, am I really a Christian? The fruits of the Spirit are a good way to help determine that. And we're going to talk more about that next week as we lead up to uh, Vision Sunday. So I'm excited to start having this conversation with you. Uh, March 10th, uh, Lord willing, we'll be painting a picture of a church identity that you'll understand is biblical, achievable, and excitable. Again, it's there in your, in your notes. Uh, that statement, we are disciple-making disciples of Jesus who love God, the community, and each other. That phrase, every word matters in that phrase. Every word comes from either the Great Commission or the Great Commandment or somewhere else in the New Testament. But I've given you the two references there for the Great Commandment and Great Commission. So join us March 10th at 10 a.m. for our Vision Sunday. I'm excited to, to start this conversation with you in a more intentional way. But this morning we're going to be in our How We Got Here series. In fact, 
I'm going to do something that I don't know that many pastors do ever. So be ready. We're going to end this series a week early. Have you ever been a part of a church where a sermon series ended a week early? I don't think I have. Usually they last longer for some reason, but we're going to cut this one short. Um, it's, we're going to be looking at verse, uh, chapters 10 and 11. And as I was studying this, this week in this passage, uh, there's lots of content here. There's lots of details and things to consider, but they're closely related. There's one big story coming out of this passage. And so instead of splitting it up, I thought, well, let's just put it together because they go together. I promise to you this morning that most of us are going to leave this building with new information about the Bible that you didn't know before you got here. I promise that to you. And I, I love to read the Bible. I, I love to read the Bible and see the connections that are there. And we're going to see some connections in chapters 10 and 11 that you may not have picked up if you just read them by themselves. And so I'm looking forward to, to, to seeing this happen with us this morning. I hope that as you read and learn from the Bible that your knowledge of God and your love for Him grows. That is the point. We're not here to just be smart about God, but our, it should move us to love God more, to, uh, to know more of Him and to love Him. And I'm trusting that you're seeing that this introduction that we've had in the book of Genesis to the rest of the Bible is making your personal and group Bible reading easier to understand. In this series, we have been looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first book of your Bible, and we're forming an introduction to the rest of the Bible. The things that we're learning here in Genesis 1 through 11 helps us to understand everything else in the Bible. If you don't understand the things that happen in Genesis 1 through 11, you might struggle with understanding the things in the rest of the Bible. And so it's really a good exercise we've been through looking at this section of Genesis. The Bible is many stories telling one big story. That's the story of God chasing and rescuing people like you and me. And he's doing that because he brings us back into the holy work that God created us for. So again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, but for the sake of our reading this morning, we're going to be reading Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and we're going to be bouncing back between 10 and 11. In my Bible, it's all in the same fold, so, you, so it's not too much bouncing, but let's look at Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the name of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray in response to what we just read here in Genesis chapter 11. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you interact with us when we need you to interact with us. Lord, help us to take the truth that we find here in this short passage and apply them not only to the rest of the Bible narrative, but to our lives as well. You are good to us. We thank you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what we have here is just nine verses. And you're familiar with this passage, probably. If you've been in church at any length of time, you've probably heard of this passage. It's nine verses, but it's a huge part of the storyline of the Bible. What happens here can help explain almost everything else. We'll look at this in greater details in just a moment, but I want to tie the flood narrative to this narrative. Just like how we did the connection, we have a connection of Adam and Eve to Noah through Seth. We have a connection from the flood narrative to the tower through chapter 11 and chapter 10 on to chapter 12 of Genesis. Now, there are some people who read their Bible And they read chapters 10 and chapters 11, and they see a contradiction here. I don't know if you spent much time reading chapters 10 and chapters 11, looking at them together, but if you just read them at face value, you might see that there could be a contradiction here. I started with chapter 11 on purpose because chapter 11 actually precedes chapter 10, or they're happening at the same time. The story that's happening in chapter 10 and chapter 11 are the same story, but they're just separated because we read you know, one thing after another. But it's, the same. it's like what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. In creation, Genesis 1 and 2 has two creation narratives. It's the same creation event, but just told from two different perspectives. We, uh, we zoom in and we zoom out in Genesis, and we're doing that here in 10 and 11. In chapter 10, we're zoomed out. In chapter 11, we're zoomed in. Much like in Genesis 1, we were zoomed out. In Genesis 2, we were zoomed in. Moses is the author here of Genesis. He's far removed from these early events in Genesis, and he's telling a story. It's not a linear one. It's not one that's in chronological order. And so, again, chapter 11 in your Bible is the same story that's happening in chapter 10, but it precedes chapter 10 in a way. It might have been easier to write down what happens in Genesis 11 first and then write down what happens in Genesis 10. But Moses is telling a story. And Genesis 12, which we won't get to uh, in this series, is the beginning of Abraham. And so all this stuff is playing into the fact of how Moses is writing uh, and telling this important story as he arranges this passage to help bridge us from the flood Abraham, and that's what Moses is trying to do. He's trying to bridge the flood to Abraham, and he's doing it through the, through the tower. And so there is no contradiction in Genesis 10 through 11. But you probably didn't think there was one, did you? It's okay. Um, as you read into it, you might have questions, though, and that's, that's, that's normal. And so it's good to have these kind of questions and think about this. Genesis 10 
is full of names that no one wants to pronounce in front of anybody else. And if, if I did or if you did, we would mispronounce most of them. But I want you to look at chapter 10 there in your Bible. Now we have the lights on brighter in here so that we can see our Bible a little bit better. There in Genesis 10 in your Bible, we're seeing the results of Genesis 11. So Genesis 2 through 5, and this is in your notes if you want to write this down. Genesis 10, 2 through 5, it's all about Japheth and his descendants. Japheth and his descendants. And Genesis 10, 6 through 20, it's all about Ham and his descendants. And then Genesis 10, 21 through 31 is all about Shem and his descendants. Now these are Noah's boys, if you don't remember. These are Noah's boys who were on the ark with Noah, with their wives. These boys and Noah, they survived the ark. And last week, one of these boys humiliated Noah. Do you remember which one? Which one of these boys saw Noah's drunken nakedness and told his brothers? Ham. It was Ham. And Noah cursed Ham's son, his lineage of Canaan. And when you look at chapters 10 there, what do you notice about the amount of space that's devoted to each of these kids and their descendants? Ham has the most written about him, doesn't he? He has the most. He's the one who humiliated Noah. If you look through the descendants of Ham in Genesis 10, 6 through 20, you're going to see many enemies of Israel. Many enemies of Israel that are born from Ham. Now, there's not, there's not an Israel yet, but the enemies that Israel will have are coming from this line of Ham. I want you to see something else here. Mo, Moses is doing, as he's writing here, he's, there's a little bit of controversy on the order of, of the oldest to the youngest. Um, Japheth, I believe, is the oldest son of Noah. Ham is the youngest, and Shem is the middle son. But Moses puts the story of Shem and his descendants at the end of this passage in chapter 10. Why would he do that? In your notes there, I've listed a, a passage in both the ESV and the NIV. This is what chapter 10, verse 21 says. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. That, that's the ESV. That's the one I use. It's the one I preach out of. But the NIV says it this way, and it's there in your notes as well. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now, if you read the NLT or the NIV, you'll see there's a little asterisk mark there that sort of uh, let you know there's something else here. It's not just what this is reading. And it will say that either Japheth was the older or that uh, Shem uh, was the older brother. Now, regardless of any confusion that, may, that brings, that's not, that's not the point here in chapter 10. What I want you to understand here in chapter 10 is that Shem was the most important of the sons. 
That's why Moses saves him for the end. Again, he's thinking of chapter 12, of getting us to Abraham. And Shem is the most important. Shem's lineage was the one that would bring about, <coughs> would bring about Israel. Shem's lineage would lead us to the family that the rest of Genesis is about, the family of Abraham. So when in verse 21 says, Shem was the father of all the children of Eber, it's showing us something that we don't have a clue about. But the earliest readers of this would have cheered and been excited, and they would have seen these words, and they would have known more about their identity. The children of Eber are the Hebrew people. Shem is their father. Shem was on the ark. Shem did not dishonor Noah when he and Japheth covered up Noah while he slept. Now, you and I, we wouldn't know this stuff naturally. We wouldn't know that Eber is the Hebrew people. Not without some study, but the early audience of Genesis, this would have been a huge deal for them. They would have been excited and celebrating because of these words. Having a good study Bible helps you to see the story behind the stories. I have several study Bibles that I use. Reading the Bible by itself is great to do, absolutely. But following along with a study Bible or a commentary about the book that you're reading will help greatly increase your understanding of what is happening in the Bible narrative. And it's especially helpful in the Old Testament. I regularly use the ESV Study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, and the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Let's move over to the tower. This is in Genesis 11. This is what we read at the beginning of our time together this morning. Why is this passage here? Why is this passage, of all the things that Moses could have written about, why did he write about the tower? I mentioned to you that this is a huge part of the storyline of the Bible. But why is it? Let's look again at verses 1 through 11 just to be reminded of what's happening here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In these nine verses, so much is happening here. And since we've worked through the first nine or ten chapters of Genesis, we have a good foundation to discern what is actually happening here and ask the question, and to answer the question, 
is this a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Is it good or bad what's happening here at the tower? Now, when you read verses 5 and on, you understand it's a bad thing because God stops it. But what if you just stopped at verse 4? What if you just stopped at verse 4? Look at the map in your notes. You've got a map there in your notes. Maps are helpful as you study the Bible because most of us have never been to the Middle East. None of us, or most of us, have never been uh, to the, these areas that we're looking at. Uh, and we definitely weren't there when this was happening. And so looking at these maps, I find, are helpful. So you've got the three boys from Noah. You have Ham. His line there is mostly in Egypt. Do you see that? It's, he's in the, the, the Africa part of, of the map. You've got Japheth mostly up in the southern part of Europe or Asia there. And then you have Shem. Again, Abraham comes from Shem, and this is in the Middle East. So that, that helps us understand that Judaism came here um, and other Abrahamic Christianity finds its roots here. Muslim finds its roots here. So it helps to understand this is where all that came from with the Abrahamic religions. The circles kind of all converge there near where Israel is currently located. And if you look at, uh, on your map there, Sidon, if you, if you ever taken a piece of paper like this and done this to try to enlarge it, I've done that, and I always feel goofy doing that, and I almost wanted to do it just then, but surely I'm not there. Y'all have done that, haven't you? It doesn't work, but okay. <laughs> Maybe it's just a me thing. Um, but if you, if you zoom in uh, the old-fashioned way, uh, you can see Sidon there. Sort of that's where all the circles kind of converge. Now, Sidon is on your map today. If you go to Google Maps or whatever, you'll see Sidon there, and it's just north of Israel uh, in Lebanon. So just a quick observation, as you look at that map, as you look sort of at that map through contemporary eyes, might this illustration help us to understand why there's so much strife in the Middle East? Do you think that these three sons of Noah and their lineage, as they do what they do here in Genesis 11, do you think this might have anything to do with the continual strife that we have in the Middle East, in this region. So what happens in Genesis 11? In looking at your map, the ark settled near Mount Ararat. Now, I don't think that's listed on your map, but we assume that it's going to be east of Babel because in Genesis 11 too, it says that the people migrated from the east. And these, the people in Genesis 11 are the only people on the face of the earth. They're coming from the ark. There are no other people in the Bible beyond who was on the ark because the ark destroyed all the life. And so all the people were here together at the ark and they're, they're migrating and they get to this area 
uh, in the land of Shinar, and they have this idea. They're migrating, and they get to this plain, and they have this idea. Their idea is to settle, to settle in the region and stop migrating, to settle and to stop. This was their idea. Their idea is to build a city and a tower. Now, we've been dancing around this question all morning. Was this a good idea or a bad idea? Let's just go ahead and answer it. It's a bad idea. It's a horrible idea. It's a terrible idea. It's the worst idea these people could have at this moment. Why? Even if you don't read into verse 5 and beyond where God stops their idea, we know this is a bad bad idea, right? We know this is a terrible idea because we we read in Genesis 9. Genesis 9-1 tells us, just flip over to verses 9-1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It it will tell us that what's happening in Genesis 11, 1-4 is sin. It's the opposite of what God commands in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 1. Genesis 9, 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And what? Fill the earth. To fill the earth. God said, fill the earth. And the people decided to settle and stop. They decided to build the city when the command was to fill the earth. They had the fruitful and multiply part down because from those three sons, there was a whole bunch of people. There are many sons, and those sons ultimately formed cities after the tower. But these people stopped from filling the earth. They stopped obeying what God had commanded them, and they began to build a city. Now what's more is that in their stopping and in their building of the city, they wanted to build a tower to elevate themselves. They wanted to build a tower to make a name for themselves. In their tower building, they wanted God to come to them and meet them on their terms instead of being obedient to God and His command. So let's just stop right here and ask Let's ask ourselves, let me ask myself, how often do we want God to meet us on our terms instead of being obedient to God's word? Is this just an Old Testament thing? Is this just a Genesis thing? Do we do this? Do we want God to meet us on our terms instead of what is plainly written in the Bible? Do we ignore God's words to us and just want God to meet us the way we want him to meet us. How is this often expressed? How have we seen this expressed recently? We can easily point recent United Methodist Church split. Most Methodist churches in our community split from the United Methodist Church because they saw what was happening in the denomination as being against God's word. And it was a good thing that they split from that denomination. Their departure was good. It was, I'm assuming, done out of a love for God's word and devotion to him. Now, we are not Methodists. We're Baptists. 
We've never been Methodist as a church, but many of you all have come from Methodist backgrounds. But what happens in that denomination doesn't really impact us much. But hopefully, you and I can learn from it. Because are we ever tempted to have God meet us on our terms? To stop listening to God's words by our actions and our words and come up with good ideas and ask God to meet us where we want to be met? We do, don't we? It's a temptation for all of us. Every one of us have this temptation. I think it's important as we consider the beginning of a revisioning for our church in the coming weeks. I ask for you to pray for me as your pastor that as I lead us into this vision of what and not so much of how we are to do things, pray for us, pray for me, that we stay focused on God's words, His commands for us, and not just really good ideas and things like that. I'm going to pray for you that you see the vision as being a biblical one and that you hold on to the Bible as we look at this vision and let go of personal preferences or good ideas. Let's both look at the Bible and at what God has commanded us as his church and follow him on God's terms and not our own. This will be difficult at times. It will. There's no doubt about it. You and I will both be tempted to to want to do things like the tower. But what they do at the tower is not what God commanded them. It was completely their idea. And it was the opposite of what God wanted them to do. Let us learn from this narrative in the Bible. Let us learn from this passage. Let us learn and not repeat it. For the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God, let's look at God's word together. Let's follow his word and allow it to direct our paths. Now let's see how God responds to what all the people do at the tower. So in chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, this is what we see. Come, this is God speaking, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In Genesis 9-1, God wants his creation after the flood to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. His creation that was saved from the flood and was born after the flood decided on their own, in their own minds, and in their own hearts to not do what God had commanded and to have their own ideas. God is powerful. God is sovereign. He will accomplish what he wants God confuses their language and he disperses them through the earth. And your map shows you where they ended up. In your notes, God fills the earth with the people. God fulfills the command that he gave in Genesis 9-1. God fills the earth with his people. When, his, when the people decided not to do what God said, 
God did it anyways. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God gets what he wants because he's God. Let me give you just a little bit more additional information about this area of Babel. This is also where the city and empire of the Babylon uh, Empire is at, is located. And throughout the Bible, Babylon is considered one of the biggest enemies of God's people. And you see at its root, at its foundation, it's because the people decided not to listen to God. So we started with this question. Why is the tower part of the biblical storyline? We've addressed some of that answer, but let me help you answer this question completely. What happens here at the tower is brought up again by Moses in Deuteronomy 32. If you want to flip over to Deuteronomy 32, we'll look at verses 8 and 9, and you'll see that Moses is talking about the tower. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. Now this is toward the end of the life of Moses. In your Bible, this, this passage is noted as the song of Moses. It's like he's on his deathbed. These are the final things he's thinking about before he dies. These are the last things that he wants his people to know. This is what's going on in his mind as he's approaching death. And he's pointing back to the tower because the tower is important. Here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Some of the last things that Moses wanted the people to know the people of Israel, is what happened at the tower. He wants them to remember what happened at the tower. Why? At the tower, when God dispersed the people, the, the nations, over all the earth, he did so according to the number of the sons of God. Now, who, now do you remember where we first heard this term, sons of God, in Genesis? Right before the flood. The sons of God saw the daughters of man being beautiful, they would marry them and have Nephilim. God gave the rebellious people at the tower over to false gods. As he split up the people at the tower, he gave them over to false gods. And this explains why so many cultures have gods they worship, because God at the tower dispersed the people and the nations and he gave them over to the lust of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, the things that they wanted. He gave them over to that. And he gave them over to lesser spiritual beings that God created. But it is in this setup of God giving over the people to these false, lesser beings that God interacts with humanity once again. It is in this context that God chooses Abram. We will get to know him as Abraham later. God chooses from the world, from the rebellious people groups, one nation to call his own. 
we get that story in the rest of Genesis. The people of Israel are called the people of God because God, in his grace and in his mercy, chooses one group of people. Out of the rebellion, he chooses one group, and he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He chooses one group from all the rebellion to closely associate with. God is showing grace and mercy. This is who our God is. Even in our rebellion, even when we do things the way we want to do them and the ideas that we have, God shows grace. God shows mercy. We'll discover more of this later this year as we look beyond Genesis 1 through 11. But Genesis 1 through 11 gives us this framework to understand the rest of the Bible. We get God pulling a nation out of the rebellion and calling this rebellious group. There's nothing special about this group initially. It's just that God chose them. And he says, I will be their God and you will be my people. God rescues them and he gives them the law. He shows them their need for him. He gives them a purpose of worshiping him and doing the holy work that God created for them to do initially. The Old Testament is a story of that group of people that God pulls out of the tower, of that, of that dispersing of the people. Now, spoiler alert, you know this, the Old Testament's a cycle of people, the people of Israel disobeying God, repenting, being blessed, and disobeying God again. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And it happens throughout. And it shouldn't surprise us because we're 11 chapters into the first book of the Bible. Adam and Eve didn't do very well. Noah and his boys didn't do very well. The people after the flood didn't do very well. The people of Israel throughout the Old Testament don't do very well. How about you? How are you doing with following after God, being obedient to His Word? Have you settled and stopped? In your faith in Jesus, have you settled with what you know and think, well, this is good enough? Have you stopped following after Jesus? Have you stopped having a desire to follow after Him, to make Him continually be the Lord of your life? Have you settled and stopped? For many Christians, it's a real temptation to settle and stop. When you look at how bad the world is and you realize you're just not that bad, it's easier just to settle for that and stop. Are you wanting God to meet you on your own terms? That won't work well for you. It doesn't work well for anyone. Are you in a cycle of sin and repentance? What will it take for you to break that cycle? God is at work throughout the Bible. He's, th- he's at work throughout His creation, throughout the story of life around us. God keeps stepping into the storyline of the Bible, and there's no reason for him to, th- to for us to think that he doesn't continue to step into our stories. What does he keep doing? God is powerful. God is sovereign. He will accomplish what he wants. God wants the message of the gospel to be made known to people. In our context, God wants the message of the gospel to be made known here at White Plains. He wants the gospel message to be made known here in Scottsville. 
God wants the message of the gospel to be made known in Allen County and in this region. God wants us to be reminded of the gospel message. God will accomplish what he wants. He is powerful. He is sovereign. God wants you to know this from Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I invite the worship team to come back up. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. Even if you try really, really hard, you're going to come up short. And death is the payment for sin. But God in His great mercy, God in His grace, offers you the free gift only found in Jesus. You will be made right with God when you agree with God that your sin is terrible, that you need a Savior. And when you allow Jesus to save you, And to lead you, you will experience the free gift of life everlasting that is only found in Jesus. God saved the people from the flood, but they weren't led by God when they began to build the tower. You and I are saved by Jesus' work on the cross, but that salvation must lead us to follow God and Jesus from the Bible. We're going to sing us an invitation in a moment. If you want to talk more about what it means to make Jesus your Lord, this is a time for you to come forward. You can speak with me about what does this mean. You could pray. You could pray in your seat. But turn to God's mercy this morning. It's only found in Jesus. Will you stand as we pray? God, you are good. We thank you so much for your word to us. Lord, you interact with us in ways that we can understand. Help us to pay attention to how you interact with us, how you have interacted in your word. Lord, help us to understand and see if we have settled and stopped. If we have settled for what we know of you as good enough and have stopped following after you, would you burden our soul? Would you burden our spirit? to say that it's not enough. There's so much more of you to know. There's so much more of you to enjoy, to worship, and to love. Help us to rediscover and to remember you. You are good. And we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.